0: Behind the Scenes, conversations with European researchers and innovators.
1: Learn to love the ocean and learn why the ocean matters to you.
0: In this podcast, we'll hear the inspiring stories and journeys of Europe's most brilliant scientists and innovators whose discoveries are having an impact on our daily lives. Here's how they got to where they are. These are our top stories. Our guest today is Professor Murray Roberts, Chair of Applied Marine Biology and Ecology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. After years of work as a marine biologist, he is currently coordinating the EU-funded project iAtlantic, through which he is carrying out the most comprehensive ecosystem and ocean-wide health check of the Atlantic Ocean to date. Good morning, Professor Murray. It's delightful to talk with you today. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, tell us about your career highlights so far, and then we'll get into a bit more nitty-gritty.
1: My name is Murray Roberts, I'm Professor of Applied Marine Biology and Ecology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and my journey to where I am now really started uh, when I, well I guess when I was a child and I put on a face mask, looked in the in the water and I was just blown away <laughs> to see all these things living there. So I loved natural history as a child and really that face mask opened up a whole new world. Um, I seem to remember my first snorkeling trip was on the, just around the island of Guernsey in the Channel Islands.
0: So you really have been passionate about this all life long. How did you pursue that passion?
1: So I then studied um, biology at every opportunity I got through school. I took every field trip I could get myself on to the Brecon Beacons in Wales, out there into the hills. I grew up in London, so it was nice to kind of get out and into the natural world.
0: And so how did that kid uh, looking at the world with glittering eyes end up becoming Professor of Applied Marine Biology and Ecology?
1: I took a degree at the University of York, biology degree, and during that degree I had the chance to work on tropical coral reefs with the Tropical Marine Research Unit. That was just fantastic. We actually organised our own expedition to the Sinai Peninsula, lived as a group of students, very, very simply under a canvas tent to keep the sun off. We slept under the stars, studied the reef fish.
0: Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. And tell me then, what was your specific angle of research there?
1: I was trying to work out why reef fish associate with certain corals. And if you have more corals and more complexity in the ecosystem, do you get more fish? And indeed you do. And I found that in my undergraduate project. And that was written up as a small paper in in the academic literature.
0: Wow, already during your undergraduate studies. So did that expedition have an impact on your career path?
1: While I was in Egypt, I actually happened to meet another university academic. I was a student. He was a professor and uh, I joined him to go fishing with the Bedouin and we kind of started talking, struck up a conversation. He invited me to Glasgow University to discuss doing a PhD. I took that next jump and started then working with him at the University of Glasgow.
0: Well, that's um, a very fortunate, really lucky encounter. Did you keep studying corals for your PhD as well?
1: Actually, on the symbiosis, that anemones form with little algal cells that live in their tissues. Following that I moved to postdoctoral work at the Scottish Association for Marine Science. That's a a laboratory in the Highlands of Scotland on the Atlantic coast. And there I was introduced to deep-sea corals by John Gage, who was a professor of deep-sea biology. That really did change my life, that move, because I've been working on deep-sea corals ever since. And so there's a sort of straight line through the little boy who liked marine biology, I guess, to, to what it is I do today. I'm kind of doing the same thing, but just in different ways in different places.
0: back to when you were a bit younger, I'm quite struck by that. And I'm so interested in how you turn that sort of passion into something that becomes a career and a study point. How do you go by training something that was just pure enjoyment? And how did you change what was a passion into something that was academic, if you like, or a field for research?
1: I think there were two things that were at play there in terms of turning my curiosity about natural history into a career. The first was that I was just genuinely curious. I was always wondering why things were the way they were. You know, why does an animal do what it does and not something else? Why are they so diverse? Those questions really fascinated me. I hated anything that hurt animals and plants. I felt it was completely unnecessary. Why would you stamp on a wasp? You know, why wouldn't you let the wasp go, let it fly away and do what a wasp needs to do? So these things really got to me as a young person. And I wanted to try to find a way where I could understand nature, but also do things that would help conserve nature and look after it. And that was more just because I wanted it to be that way. But I was aware that there were big environmental crises that were looming. Things were changing. And, you know, deforestation of the Amazon was one I was really particularly worried about. I wasn't so much thinking back then About the oceans, like all of us, we're land-living animals. We tend to think about what we see and what we know about. So that was a revelation that came to me a little bit later, was just how little we know about most of the planet, in other words, the ocean.
0: Well, it takes up three quarters of the Earth's surface, doesn't it? But I'm interested, also, you mentioned some of the professors who helped you. Is there anyone else that sort of encouraged you down this path, any other turning points that made you feel, this is the career for me?
1: I had a really lovely biology teacher. I liked him very much. I also really enjoyed his style. As a teacher, he was quite a performer, I seem to remember. So he'd get his class interested, not just in the subject, but also in the way he put things across. And I think I remember that hitting home to me. At university, I mean, there was a lot of inspirational teachers, almost too many to recall and to name. But I was really lucky with the university that I went to. We had people that were highly expert and really dedicated to their science and also to their roles as teachers. They took their projects very seriously. They gave the students a great chance.
0: And so what would be the piece of advice you would give a teenager today who is fascinated by this and keen to get involved? Or maybe what was the best advice you were given?
1: I think the best advice I can give is just don't give up because it's not going to be easy. Nothing in life is, is easy. And these particular careers are quite hard to get a grip on and to keep and to maintain. You just have to be consistent because every grant you write, every application you make, well, probably 10 of them will be rejected or more for everyone that ever gets funded. And that's true for everybody. And so it's really perseverance. And if you have the passion, look after that passion, don't get ground down and keep going.
0: I think that's very applicable across all sorts of areas. So we've covered a lot of the past. Now let's talk about your current project. Tell our listeners what you've been working on thanks to EU fundings and why it matters.
1: So I'm currently coordinating the European iAtlantic project. Now, this is a project that sets out to carry out an integrated assessment of Atlantic marine ecosystems. And we're doing that both over space and over time. So it's a hugely ambitious piece of work. And so the way that we make it happen is by looking at certain regional areas within which we understand the ecosystems reasonably well. So we've got an assessment of how they're changing over time. We want to understand those changes and see what's driving them. If they're changing to the point they might tip to a whole different state, we have to understand what's driving that. Then we can advise policymakers about how they might back off other pressures in those areas.
0: And can you give us some examples?
1: So, for instance, in the deep and open ocean, we see a huge variety of global change pressures. The ocean is warming. The ocean is becoming more acidic as carbon dioxide dissolves in the ocean and mixes. And the ocean is gradually losing oxygen. A warmer ocean will hold less oxygen. Just like if you warm up a can of fizzy drink, it it becomes less fizzy. It can't hold as much gas. It's exactly the same in the global ocean. So, these huge pressures are changing things really radically. I think people are getting familiar now with the fact that fish stocks, fish populations that are used to colder waters are having to migrate towards the poles. So we're seeing the fish moving already. I often work on corals and sponges on the seafloor. What are they going to do? They're they're living fixed to the seafloor. The areas that are suitable for them to grow currently are becoming unsuitable. So the I-Atlantic project is trying to get a grip on all of these issues, looking at certain important vulnerable ecosystems In case studies that span Iceland all the way through the equatorial Atlantic and down and into the South Atlantic. So it's a really big project, 36 partners, and we're funding work everywhere across the EU, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa. And then we have partners we work with in North America as well. Canadians and Americans join the project.
0: It sounds indeed a really big, really international project. And you're very familiar with the EU research missions under Horizon Europe and in particular efforts to encourage better use of R&I to recover, regenerate and further protect marine ecosystems, so including oceans, seas, coastal and inland waters, as a source of new medicines, healthy food and proteins and leisure as well, the the planet's life support really. Can you tell us more specifically how important EU R&I is is in supporting and recognising you in your field.
1: So the European Union gives tremendous convening power and its focus on ocean issues and planetary sustainability is tremendous. So I'll give you a couple of examples of how this has worked in practice. Ecosystems we work on need to be understood at the scale of an ocean basin. If I understand, for instance, a deep sea coral or sponge habitat off Scotland, well, I need to know very quickly where the Larvae that come in to feed that area have come from when the corals or sponges spawned. Where do the larvae move to? How connected is that place across a wider scale? So we need to work very quickly at the scale of an ocean basin. And it's been the European Union that's allowed that science to develop by brokering agreements in 2013. The Galway statement on cooperation between the EU, Canada and the USA. I was actually the coordinator of the Atlas Project, one of the two projects really mandated to move forward under that all-Atlantic research alliance. The other one focused on deep-sea sponges, so both focused actually on deep-sea, deep-seabed Atlantic ecosystems. The second statement, signed in 2017, was a Bell statement, and that brokered the partnership between the European Union, South Africa, and Brazil. And that's the partnership that really underlies iAtlantic, and the other projects that move forward under the All-Atlantic Research Alliance. And it's a fantastic opportunity. I really can't overstate that. We've also brought Argentina into our project, and we're able to share funding. This is critical. We can share European funding with our scientific partners in Argentina, Brazil, and South Africa. That makes all the difference in the world. We're working as absolute equals in these projects we're doing work we're employing people we're putting those new instruments into the south atlantic we're looking at data sets together off southern africa and off brazil and argentina so really really wonderful opportunities and it is the only way to study these ecosystems we have to move to a full basin scale assessment that's what projects like atlas and atlantic have now been able to achieve
0: Behind the scenes. As the first ocean wide health assessment of the Atlantic ecosystem, it's fair to say that iAtlantic is not only pioneering but very ambitious. So, can you give examples of the work and some innovations you're using or developing?
1: So, as a project, we've taken it really upfront that we will gather diverse knowledge systems. We'll also take information from local and indigenous communities and from citizen scientists from industry as well and these are often untapped data sources that we've been able to access on the island of Bermuda there's an individual who I remember I met him he actually studied in Edinburgh as a child himself and he set up his own operation Wales Bermuda because he saw the humpback whales breaching offshore and his daughter asked him why do those whales breach and where are they going and he realized he couldn't answer those questions so he started to read about it And he realized that scientists only came to Bermuda once in a blue moon. They'd look at the whales. They'd identify the patterns on the tails, on the flukes. They'd photograph them. They could individually identify the whales. But they hardly ever made it to Bermuda. So he got a boat and he went out day after day, photographing the flukes. He now has the best data set of the passage of migrating humpback whales through the Atlantic by Bermuda. So we're working with him and we've used statistical approaches at the University of Edinburgh to mark and recapture, as it were, those whales to estimate the population sizes. And it's a fantastic example of using diverse and often rarely accessed local knowledge on a really important component of the Atlantic ecosystem. I think it's all about balance in our projects. And what we've seen come out as a result of using existing and new data is that when the pandemic hit, we could actually keep moving because we were working with existing data as well as the data we had to collect ourselves.
0: So am I right in thinking that you're studying the ecosystem, the biology of those deep-dwelling organisms, and to use a phrase, like a canary in the coal mine, if we see the global warming that's happening and we're seeing the climate breakdown and the damage to ecosystems?
1: And new research is showing that's indeed the case. That's actually really significant because these deep sea coral reefs have been there for hundreds of thousands, in some cases for millions of years. They provide a home to thousands of other animal species. If the coral skeletons dissolve away, the dead skeletons disappear, that habitat also disappears, and we're starting to see that happening. So this is one of the major concerns and why we think it's, you know, as you say, the canaries in the coal mine we need to look at to understand how these changes are going to affect all kinds of other species across the deep Atlantic Ocean.
0: So working as a scientist is not always in an office or a laboratory, as we would imagine. Do you spend a lot of time on a boat?
1: In my younger times, definitely, I would be at sea for the maximum would be about three months of the year that I would typically do. When I moved into this job of managing European projects and leading these projects, I stayed on shore. That was really actually important uh, to do that and focus on making sure everything worked. But I actually spent August on the flagship Atlantic expedition. It was called Imerobelis II. It's named for an iconic plant of West Africa. And our expedition was with the Spanish vessel Samiento de Gamboa sailing from Vigo, then down to the Canary Islands, where most of the scientists joined. I joined in the Canary Islands. And then we sailed south into the Equatorial Atlantic and worked for a month all around Capo Verde. And it was a most extraordinary uh, expedition, really, really productive, very, very good camaraderie. I think one of the things we all experienced on the human level was that for the first time since the pandemic, we were together on a ship And we were, after quarantining and testing, we were in a COVID free world and we knew it. And we could sit close to our colleagues, uh, we could discuss as we used to, and we could work as we were used to doing. And so that was a wonderful experience.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, we're talking about your projects at the moment. But do you want to say, in any way, just to encourage young people across Europe to look at research and innovation as a way of not only helping the environment? But also helping ourselves, because some of these areas you're studying can be the new sources of food or of medicines or potentially completely new ideas that we haven't even thought of.
1: Very much. This is one of the hugely exciting parts of my job. And when I started working in the deep sea, I realised if I went to almost any area of the deep sea and I photographed it, I would be the first person to see that part of the planet. I mean, that's an amazing thing to do. So every time we're out there and we put a remote vehicle down or a simple camera frame, the chances are we're the first person to see that area of seabed. Now, the abyssal ocean, so between three to 6,000 meters water depth, that's 60% of planet Earth. and Nobody has ever seen it everything that happens in the abyss affects all of us. That place locks carbon away. If we change the way the abyss function, we're going to lose our ability to sequester carbon. The carbon stored in the ocean remains a huge uncertainty. So for all these reasons, we have to understand it better. You mentioned the chances of discovering new pharmaceutical products and new drugs. Absolutely right. Now imagine if in the future we make decisions to carry out activities in the deep ocean that are destructive to the animals that live there, that knock the corals down, that smash the sponges. But we think it's worth it because we're going to eat the fish that live there, or we're going to take the minerals that are found in those areas for some short-term profit. But in that process, we destroy the animals that within their biology have potent anti-cancer compounds that could have been the cures for very many terrible diseases. We're seeing you know reports on this all the time that are emerging but there's not nearly enough focus on the natural products and understanding why the animals in the deep ocean have these potent natural products we don't understand the ecology and that actually hampers our understanding of the biotechnology and the potential that has for humankind so my argument would always be conserve nature be very precautionary in what you do because when it's gone it's gone
0: I'm struck by the way you talk about it. It's often we spend our time, particularly with kids around, talking about going to space and how fascinating it is. And yet we have it right on our doorstep in terms of undiscovered areas. Is there one sort of closing thought that you want to leave us with, particularly in terms of people who might be listening with their hands on the reins of policy or who can encourage young people to get involved and really see the potential benefits of the ocean? but also to the general public in terms of conserving it.
1: Learn to love the ocean and learn why the ocean matters to you. So a huge proportion of the oxygen that we breathe on planet Earth was generated by plankton that grow in the ocean. 25% of the carbon dioxide that we've released since we industrialised has dissolved in the sea. That's why the ocean is becoming acidic. The North Atlantic is the biggest carbon store in the ocean because the ocean overturns in the North Atlantic and brings this carbon down into the deep waters. Now, if we're out by such a significant factor, all our models of carbon storage and global change are wrong. We have to understand this. We have to monitor more effectively. I believe the route to do that is by democratizing access to the ocean, by increasing awareness of the ocean, and working at ocean basin scale equally. So we don't have funding limited in one place. We have funding shared across all partners in projects like iAtlantic so we can work as equals and take these projects on. The scientific community is ready. We're organized. We have the kit. We have the capacity. We need to internationalize and do it right, not just in the Atlantic, but all the ocean basins of the world because it's one ocean.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Murray Roberts. More information on your project can be found online. Check the details of the episode for all the links and information, especially if you want to know more about what the EU is doing to restore the ocean and waters and how you can support this mission podcast series is brought to you by the European Commission and you can find it on all listening platforms. If you enjoyed this conversation, rate this podcast on all listening platforms and share it with your friends on social media.